Well, good morning, everybody, those of you that have survived COVID this week. Um, I don't know if you all heard, my kids came down with COVID over the last weekend, and so that's been fun at my house. Thankfully, they're all on the mend. Um, my oldest had like a huge fever and was throwing up the other day, so it's, yeah, COVID's no fun, but I'm here, we're all negative, and so at least I am, so that's a good thing, but um, glad you all are here. I was thinking even yesterday of just hearing someone else that came down with it today, like, there's going to be no one here at church because everybody's going to be sick, but uh, we're all here. My name is Matt Munger. I'm one of your elders here, in case you don't know me. If you don't know me, you know, by all means, come say hi, um, but today we're going to be walking through a lot of scripture, and so just be prepared. We've been walking through Exodus um, for quite some time now, and we've been going at a fairly slow pace, but today we're going to take some big chunks and some big leaps forward, and we'll uh, do that next week as well as Doug finishes up. But uh, I think if you were to go around and ask the majority of Christians, what are some events out of the Old Testament? Just name some events. And you probably get things like Noah's Ark, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, um, you know, things like that, parting the Red Sea, uh, and probably the plague. Because it's a major event. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I'm going to take a look at the first six, and then Doug's going to finish up next week. Uh, with the last few, and then bring us home. And the weird thing is, is these plagues bring out a lot of varieties of emotions and thoughts from us, from confusion to anger to maybe embarrassment. We don't want to talk about it, um, or just ignoring it. I've even heard people use them as an excuse to say, you know, I am not going to believe in the things of the Bible, because why would a loving God cause so much death and destruction to people? But no matter our reaction to them, one thing I think is fairly universal in our church is our lack of understanding of why they occurred. Could you write a little two or three sentence paragraph and say, this is why the plagues happened? All in all, there were 10 plagues in total. And I think for some reason, probably because I hadn't really ever thought about it too much, that I thought they were really quick, that they were just back to back to back over the course of like two weeks or maybe a month. But in reality, scholars much smarter than me have put together a pretty good estimate of the timeline. And so they say, based on when the, the timing of when the Nile River floods, when we're pretty certain the first plague took event, uh, to when the Passover celebrated at Easter time, that it took roughly 10 months or so, from June, July, all the way to April. And can you imagine dealing with ever-worsening plagues approximately once every month for almost a year? And we thought 2020 was bad, right? Well, today, I want to lay out the plagues by showing how they're related to the Egyptian gods, briefly, and then talk about the first six of them, as I mentioned, and then we'll end with a discussion about Pharaoh's heart. So let's start in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. So then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that had turned into a snake. Tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch. I am about to strike the water in the Nile with a staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. So the Lord said to Moses, 
Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and all the water reservoirs, and they will become blood. There will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the wooden and stone containers. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials. He raised his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his house, and didn't take even this to heart. All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink the water from the rivers. And seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So here we are, the first plague. Now, the Nile, as you all likely know, was not just a river to the Egyptians, right? It was their livelihood. It was their lifestyle. Each year, as the Nile flooded its banks, it inundated the land with soil and nutrients and all the things necessary for people to grow their crops, right? And we know this. Uh, those of you that have grown up in school, you know these things. And we know that it was this, this major thing in Egypt. It still is. If you look at a map of Egypt, everybody lives along the Nile because it's a desert, right? You live where the water is. Each year, Pharaoh would lead these ceremonies to commemorate the blessings brought to people by the river as the floods started to happen, right? Every year, so roughly June-ish, July, depending on uh, the rains of that year, Pharaoh would lead these huge ceremonies, blessing the river, blessing the people. And it is believed, very likely, that it's one of these early ceremonies that Moses would see come before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. So God told Moses, go down to the river, bring that staff that you had previously turned into a snake, and meet Pharaoh. Tell him that since you've not obeyed God and refused to let his people go, I'm going to demonstrate my power to you so that you will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. The fish are going to die, and it's going to smell terrible, and you're going to go thirsty. In the summer, in the desert, you're going to go thirsty. And then God did just that, verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water, and the water was changed to blood. And the fish died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink the water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Imagine the Willamette River. Is it that way? Imagine the Willamette River turning to blood. All the crops would fail. Our water system is completely demolished. Everything is contaminated by blood. And even says even the storage containers that they had previously had water in were turned to blood. I, I don't know if we have one of those Culligan Man water things here. Imagine that thing turning to blood. Your faucets turning to blood. It's clear that God was demonstrating his power in a mighty way. Now recently, uh, recently-ish, we were talking in our community group and asking the question, don't these plagues correlate to the Egyptian gods? Isn't there some sort of relationship there? And, and I think, although care must be taken to not read too much into the text, we do read in chapter 12, verse 12, God says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt at the end of this. So it does seem evident that God was exerting his own power and authority over the areas in which the Egyptians worshipped and placed their own gods, such as the Nile. And we know that Egyptians had a lot of gods, right? Several years ago, I was in a remote village in East Asia, and we met this man 
and he took us on this journey up to this sacred, uh, sacred pond. And at the end of the trail, and this isn't the same one, but it looks identical. I couldn't find the picture that I took, but this is another one that I took that's just like it. Um, at the end of the trail before this lake was, was this. And it's hard to see in that picture, but at the end of these, these wooden poles, there's arrow fletchings. And they're wrapped in all these prayer flags, so it's hard to see kind of what's going on. Um, and we talked to the guy, and he said, he pointed up, he said, look up there. And we could see on the top of the mountain nearby another one of these, and they're everywhere up there, but we could see another one of these up there. And he said that these are arrows literally staking the god of that valley to the ground so that their animals don't die. That's why they're shaped like arrows. They're literally staking their god to the ground so he can't harm their people and their sheep. And I couldn't help but think when he was saying that, what would it take for God to demonstrate his power to this man, his family, and that village that lived in that little valley? What would it take for God to demonstrate to him that he's all-powerful? That what they're doing is an utter waste of time. And it seems that God's doing that same thing here. That he is showing the Egyptians, he's showing Pharaoh, and ultimately us, that the things that we do to worship all these false gods and place all of our authority and power in something else is an utter waste of time. And again, the scriptures don't specifically call out the names of the Egyptian gods, and, but we know and historians know what the approximate equivalent is. And according to the Britannica, Hopi is an ancient Egyptian, uh, in ancient, ancient Egyptian, was the personification of the annual inundation of the Nile. As the Britannica says, Hopi was the most important among numerous personifications of aspects of natural fertility, and his dominance increased during Egyptian history. They were, hymns were composed in his honor. He didn't have any temples or formal cults aside from the headwaters of the Nile, where shrines were built up there. But he was a hugely important god in their time. I've got four pictures of him. Uh, I tried to find some cool pictures that, that are actual like relics or pictures of uh, statues and whatnot. And then go to the next one, I think. There's just, I, it's fascinating to me just to see and kind of correlate. These are the things. And then one more, what they're worshiping. And then you could buy that at Walmart if you wanted to for $14.99. Uh, I had no idea that you could do that, but there he is. Um, so if you want to go buy your Egyptian god. You can do that later. Literally, it's online at Walmart uh, right now. But God strikes them at the heart of their nation. He strikes them just in the, the hardest way possible, right at the very beginning in this cultural God, this cultural icon of Egypt. And then the scale on which this occurred was immense, right? It seemed all the way from extremes to the water containers, the branches of the Nile, the rivers, the canals, the ponds anything that could hold water from the Nile, all these domestic vessels. As one commentary author states, the sufferings of the people from thirst must have been severe. Nothing could more humble the pride of Egypt than this dishonor brought upon their national god. Imagine having to dig in the sand to try and find water for you and your family in the summer in the desert. Since the Nile was so vital 
to Egypt's agricultural, to their economy. This event was particularly alarming, as it would be here in the Willamette Valley. What kind of crop would you get this next year when the land was covered in blood? Probably not great. Now, some will try and diminish this plague and say, well, it wasn't actually turned to blood. It was some sort of like freak algae bloom or some sort of plant life or some other vegetation reaction that we just don't know about. And and it just doesn't make sense. Nothing on this scale. Coupled with the fish dying and everything else that happened, nothing can explain the immediateness of the reaction or the extensiveness at which it occurred. It seems pretty clear, as gross as it is, that the water was turned completely to blood. And if it were me, and I'm going to venture a guess that that you all are like me, that if I was Pharaoh, I would have relented right there. Like, you just came and told me that the entire Willamette Valley is going to turn to blood, and then you struck down your staff, and it happened? Okay, I'm convinced. Yeah, your God is a powerful God. The most important, important icon of your nation? Demoralized? That's crazy. Why didn't Pharaoh do the same? Well, we'll circle back to this and this hard heart. And I wish I had great insight onto the the Egyptian magicians. I wish I knew how they did what they did. Because clearly, they did something, whether by a scientific trick, supernatural powers, or something else. They did something that was convincing enough for Pharaoh to say, I don't know, Moses, Aaron, you guys are frauds. Your God, that I have never heard of before, isn't real. And surely they weren't able to do it on the grand scale that Yahweh had done, but whatever it was was convincing enough for Pharaoh and his hard heart to turn away from them, to turn away from Moses and Aaron, and ultimately to turn away from God. And again, we'll come back to his hard heart. The rest of the plagues kind of follow this same pattern, with a few changes here and there, which I'm going to try and highlight. But we see Moses coming before Pharaoh, Pharaoh having some sort of reaction, Moses explaining to to Pharaoh, hey, this is what's going to happen if you don't do something. And then the plague happens, and then we have Pharaoh's reaction to the plague. So let's move to chapter 8, verse 1, the second plague of the frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territories with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go into your palace, into your bedroom, onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls, and be everywhere. The frogs will come up onto you, your people, and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand again with the staff over the rivers, the canals, and the ponds, and cause the frogs to come up onto the land of Egypt. And when Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But again, the magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought frogs up onto the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Appeal to the Lord to remove the frogs for me and my people. Then I will let the people go and they can sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, You may have the honor of choosing. When should I appeal on behalf of you, your officials and your people, that the frogs be taken away from you and your houses and remain only in the Nile? Tomorrow, 
Pharaoh answered. So Moses replied, as you have said, so that you may know that there was no one like the Lord your God. The frogs will go away from you, your houses, your officials, your people, and the frogs will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron went from Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord for help concerning the frogs that he had brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses had said. The frogs and the houses, the courtyards, and all the fields died. They piled them in countless heaps, and there was a terrible odor in the land. Second time they talked about smell. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he again hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, frogs were a natural element in river life, right? We have frogs here. Especially after the floodwaters receded around December, frogs would just come up on the land. They'd just be found wherever. As the waters receded, oh, look, there's a frog because the waters are gone. The Egyptians were used to that. But certainly not the quantity of these frogs. They're not in your kneading bowl as you're making bread. Just pretty gross. To find them now, sometime around August, would be hugely unexpected. And the Egyptians regarded frogs as having divine power. So in the Egyptian pantheon, the goddess Heket, I've got a picture of Heket, which is the one on the right, um, has a, she has a frog head. And then there's one more picture of her, um, kind of more of a drawing. They believe, the Egyptians believe, that from her nostrils came the breath of life. And it animated the bodies of those created by her husband god, Kunum, I think is how to say it, from the dust of the earth. That her nostrils, she just inundated the breath of life. And as a result, frogs were fairly sacred. They were not to be killed. And I think if this would happen to us today, if we had frogs everywhere, if they were hopping around in here, we wouldn't have any problem like sweeping them out the door, kicking them out, throwing them out the window or whatever. But that wasn't the case then. They would have treated these frogs as annoying as it would have been to have them everywhere. They would have treated them with great respect, crawling all over your food as you try and make bread. This time, though, Pharaoh has a different reaction. Although his magicians were able to somehow bring forth some frogs, apparently he wanted them gone, not more of them. Guys, why are you bringing more frogs? We have too many. I want them gone. So he calls Moses and Aaron to him and says, hey, pray to the Lord to take these frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go offer sacrifices to the Lord. And Moses' reaction is interesting. He says, fine, just tell me when you want me to pray. And why does he do that? Because when Moses prayed, when Pharaoh said to, and then the thing happened that Pharaoh asked to pray about, it just demonstrates God's power all the more. Pharaoh, when do you want me to pray? All right, tomorrow at 3 o'clock. And then tomorrow at 3 o'clock when Moses prays and all the frogs die? Pharaoh, come on. What more signs and evidence do you need? It's a fascinating thing. Because Pharaoh is giving so much power and authority to God because of how Moses interacted with him. By choosing a time, God coming through at that very time, it only proves further the power and authority that God has. Well, as promised, Moses prayed and God removed all the frogs. He didn't physically remove the frogs. He just killed them all. And all the people piled them up into huge heaps and they rotted and they smelled. So then high school... I met this youth pastor, a second Baptist. Anybody heard of a second Baptist? Um, in Boise, Idaho. They've since changed their name, but second Baptist. 
Uh, his name was Brian. I will never forget him because he told me this story. He said when he was in college, he prayed, played a prank on a friend, which I can't imagine that this guy remained his friend afterward. But in the summertime, it was like 100 degrees in Boise. It gets pretty hot over there. He took a fish, put it on a plate, and hid it under the passenger seat in his friend's car. When it's 100 degrees outside, and the windows are all rolled up, can you just imagine how terrible that would start to smell as that frog, or that, as that fish is rotting inside of his car? And how many days it took for him to find that fish under the passenger seat in his car? But just the smell would have been disgusting. Magnify that as you have millions of frogs across the land, everywhere, piled up and rotting. I can't imagine the smell of these rotting amphibians baking in the Egyptian summertime. Notice, though, in verse 15, Pharaoh's not good on his word. Pharaoh said, okay, pray, and if they're gone, I'll let you go. But verse 15 says, When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Again, hardens his heart and doesn't let the people go. Third place, starting in verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. And they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, and when he struck the dust of the land, gnats were on peoples and animals. All the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce gnats using their own occult practices, but they couldn't. And the gnats remained on people and animals. This is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And this one's a bit different. And this also happens again after the sixth and the ninth plague, seemingly after a response of Pharaoh just going back on his word. Moses and Aaron don't come before Pharaoh this time. God says, just do this. Strike the ground, and we're going to have gnats everywhere. Now, the Hebrew word here, it's only mentioned this one time in the entire Old Testament. And it's hard to translate. It could be either gnats or possibly mosquitoes, which is even worse, right? It's just mosquitoes everywhere. Um, God tells Moses, strike out your staff, strike the ground, and cause the dust to become gnats. The Egyptian god of Set is the god of the desert, um, which I think is the coolest one of them all, just because he looks awesome. Go to the next one. Uh, he looks pretty sweet. And then one more, my favorite. Um, I just think he looks cool. Um, why he looks like I have no idea, but this was the god of the desert, the god of dust. And God is changing this crazy-looking, kind of scary-looking god into a plague of gnats or possibly mosquitoes. And notice the, the magicians, they attempted this, but they couldn't. And as a result, they came to Pharaoh, and they're like, Pharaoh, we can't do this. The other two, somehow, they weren't convinced that it was God. But they're like, Pharaoh, this is God. This is the hand of God touching our land. Pharaoh's like, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to harden my heart. And then the next plague happens, starting in verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh 
when you see him going out to the water, tell him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that you may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your peoples, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land be where they live. Can't take it. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am here in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the country. But Moses said, It would not be right to do that, because what we will sacrifice to the Lord our God is detestable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what the Egyptians detest in front of them, won't they stone us? No, we must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he instructs. Pharaoh responded, I will let you go and sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Just don't go far. Praise him. As soon as I leave you, Moses said, I will appeal to the Lord, and tomorrow the swarms of flies will depart from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. But Pharaoh must not act deceptively again by refusing to let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses had said. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. Not one was left. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. Flies. So destructive that they destroyed everything. The land was ruined. This is perhaps pointing, there's two potential gods here. This is perhaps pointing to the Egyptian god of Array. I have him there. There's two of Ray, I believe. And then, which is an awesome little carving uh, in something. Or Uache, I think. She's interesting. Um, and then there's one more of her as well. She's got a little serpent on her head. Ray was the god of the sun, and Uachit was the goddess of swarms. So it's hard to say exactly which one was which. You know, most likely the last one, the, the lady with the serpent on her head, but. It's a little ambiguous again. But this plague marks a distinction on how God is treating the Egyptians and his own people. God again has Moses confront, or Moses confront Pharaoh, but this time he's only going to give the flies to the Egyptians. God spares his people, as it says, uh, in the land of Goshen. And if you remember, Doug preached on the genealogy a couple weeks ago. In chapter 6, Goshen's mentioned there. They're living in his land, his own people. And God is going to make a distinction between those who oppose God and those who worship him. Notice this time, the magicians aren't even mentioned. They're kind of out of the picture at this point. They come up once more, but they're not really in it. Because they're like, this is God's work, Pharaoh. We're out. We're done. After proving worthless, they're not seen again. So Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and tells them, go, sacrifice to your God. Fine, I relent. Just stay in our land. Go sacrifice, but stay here. Saying, fine, you can. Just don't go far. And Moses responds like, no, Pharaoh, this isn't okay. 
Because what we are going to sacrifice to our God is detestable to your Egyptians. As it would be today, if you were to sacrifice in the Middle East, where they still do animal sacrifices to a God that isn't their God, they will kill you. They would kill the Israelites back then. Moses said, Pharaoh, this isn't acceptable. This isn't what God has asked us to do. This isn't what we're going to do. We need to leave for our own safety. And Pharaoh says, okay, fine. I'll let you sacrifice. Just don't go very far. Just go out where we can't see you, and you'll be fine. Pharaoh says, just don't go far. Moses says, well, as soon as I leave you, I'll pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave you. We'll leave your officials and all your people. And Moses says, in a third person voice, only don't let Pharaoh go back on his word. As he's talking to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, don't you dare go back on what you said. And yet again, we see Pharaoh harden his heart and not let the people go. You guys seen uh, Princess Bride? The end of that movie with like the old lady in Miracle Max, she's like, liar! I just can't get that image out of my head of him, Moses, just like screaming at Pharaoh, liar! You said you were going to let us go, and you didn't. I did exactly what you said. I prayed the next day that the flies would be gone. And we did. We prayed. And the flies are gone. Not one was left sucked up wherever they came from. And yet, again, Pharaoh's heart is hard and he doesn't relent. And then the fifth plague happens and it really starts getting bad from here. I think possibly in reaction to Pharaoh, very much so in reaction to Pharaoh, but his continual lying to God and to Moses and Aaron. So chapter 9, verse 1 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then again the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all the Israelites' own will die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the Lord did this the next day. All the Egyptian livestock died, but none among the Israelite livestock died. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that none in the land of Israel were dead. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the people go. The Egyptian goddess this time is Hathor. She has the horns of a bull. She's there on the left. She could apparently turn into a bull, which is the next picture. Um, right there in the middle, that's her. Um, she could turn into a bull. I don't really know why the significance of that. Um, and then there's one more of her. Uh, that's the cool little carving that I found. Um, this is the Egyptian goddess Hathor, the livestock god. And again, Moses comes to Pharaoh with the exact same request. His phrasing hasn't changed. Let my people go so that they may worship. If you refuse, a terrible plague will be on your livestock. And it can't be good when God says, what's going to happen next is going to be terrible. Because it's just not a good place to be when you're against God and God says, what is going to happen is going to be terrible. This happens again, actually, later on when the Israelites ask for a king. 
God tells the people, what is going to happen to you because of this thing will be terrible. And it does. It ends up with the destruction of their, their nation. Here we see God saying, this is going to be terrible, unlike anything you've seen before. And really up until now, the plagues have been, they've been unpleasant, yes. Gross, smelly, yes. Destructive, yes. But aside from the frogs and the fish, we've not seen anything die until now. And they were really beginning to ramp up the severity of the plagues quite a bit. But notice, again, God's making a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. And then we read when Pharaoh sent out messengers and said, well, did it really happen? Did all of our animals die, but the Israelites didn't? And the messengers come back like, yeah, that's actually what's happened. All the cows and animals and sheep and donkey and everything else, they're all still alive in the land of Israel. All of ours are dead. Pharaoh didn't relent. And there's no bartering this time, no deal. He just turns away. It makes me wonder what the people of Egypt knew. Did they know that these plagues were happening because of Pharaoh? Imagine if somehow, in some crazy way, President Biden would be responsible for the death of all the animals in, like, the Midwest or something. Like, the outcry and the rage, justifiably so, if you knew one man could have prevented the death of millions of animals, and nothing happened. We have no idea what the people of Egypt knew. Certainly, they, they weren't on, you know, personal, friendly basis with Pharaoh. Maybe they didn't know all this was happening, or maybe they did, and they just followed him blindly. In any case, their animals are dead. Their land is ruined because of the flies. Blood has covered the land, destroying so many things. What do they have left as a country? And then the sixth plague of boils. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of furnace soot or ash, Throw it in the, towards the heavens. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land. So they took furnace soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it towards heaven and it became festering boils on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because they had boils also. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. The Egyptian goddess this time is Isis, the goddess of healing. God doesn't have Moses announce this time what's going to happen to Pharaoh. Again, largely because it seems like it's a response to Pharaoh just outright lying in the fifth plague. But instead, he has Moses and Aaron take handfuls of ash from the furnace and walk before Pharaoh and just chuck it in the air, LeBron James style, when he does with his chalk dust or whatever that is. And we see that boils break out on the skin of both peoples and animals. And it also seems that there's no distinction between the people of Israel and Egypt. I don't know why. Doug and I were talking about this a while back. It could be that there was a distinction, just not mentioned. Seems unlikely. Because it would have been mentioned, I would assume. For whatever reason, these boils are on the Egyptians and the Israelites. I just don't know why. 
certainly we can't make adequate uh, medical diagnosis of what has happened. However, the fact that there were likely dead animals and particularly hooved animals, all the cattle and sheep and everything, that scientists today believe that this was, this was some form of anthrax, which occurs naturally in many hoofed animals like cattle and sheep and goats and camels and so on. Kind of a cool little fact I thought. Boils covering the people. Disgusting. Terrible. And that's where we end with our play. And Doug's going to take us home the rest of the way because they get worse. And worse. But the question remains, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, well, if God can harden Pharaoh's heart, how can Pharaoh be held accountable? Jessica, you know, you and I were talking about a couple weeks ago. Well, where's free will in all of this? Does God still harden the heart of people's today? What's he up to? But what about my own heart? Between chapters 4 and 14 in Exodus, we see scripture talking about Pharaoh's heart being hardened about 20 times. Some scholars are quick to try and point out that 10 of those times we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And they say that after about this sixth plague, we start seeing God hardening his heart. Therefore, God is only further hardening what Pharaoh had already done to himself. I just don't think that that's scripturally true. It seems that they're using this as a way to justify their lack of understanding of scripture or trying to get God off the hook. Because sometimes people have a really hard time saying, God did this to Pharaoh from the beginning. And I agree. That whole free will discussion is a tough one when it comes to this. And we'll talk about it here in a second. But God is doing this for his own glory. The reason God hardens Pharaoh's heart is for his own glory. Ultimately ending at the end of this plague with the Passover, pointing towards Jesus. It's why these plagues happen, to point us towards Jesus and our salvation. Pharaoh considered himself a god. The people worshipped him as a god and they feared him as a god. And yet Pharaoh, like us, was a wicked man. Ultimately, God is saying to the Israelites, stop fearing a finite man. Stop worshiping one that you shouldn't be concerned about. Yahweh God is going to establish his name and his name only on the face of the earth. Exodus chapter 3, verse 19 says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. This guy's not going to let you go unless a greater force compels you, compels him. And then he says in chapter 7, right before we read today in verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. God is saying, I am going to harden his heart in effect to make my name known. And I'm going to harden his heart beyond which a normal person would have relented. I'm going to make him such an obstinate obstacle against me that I will be glorified. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, So that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Through Pharaoh's hard heart, God let him, Pharaoh, become a horrible warning to others, to us, about the
about the stupidity and arrogance of worshiping man, of following things other than God. Look at Pharaoh's initial reactions to to Moses and Aaron in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. Right? That's familiar. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I just want to let Israel go. Pharaoh's like, Who the heck is this God that you're talking about? I know all these other gods, all these ones that we've seen pictures of. I know them. Your God? Who's he? I'm not going to let you go. And besides, even if I had heard of him, no. I'm letting you go. Heck with you. And that really begins the journey of this man, Pharaoh, who, pretending to be God, attempted to say to anyone, I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want. And we've seen him get shown the true power of Yahweh as God establishes himself on this earth. Again and again and again, we see God harden Pharaoh's heart, and we see Pharaoh, his own heart being hard, turn away. We see Pharaoh turn away from anything that was stronger than himself. Then at a point, for me, it would have been the first plague, when a normal person would have repented and turned away and followed God, we see God harden his heart further, allowing him to endure and stay alive through all of this to show God's greatness and renown for generations to come. But I know you're asking the question, well, isn't it unjust? Isn't it unfair to Pharaoh? Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their way and live. God gives mercy on those who turn away, who cry out rather than punish. Or Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14, says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. As much as I would like, as much as we would like as people, we're not the arbitrators of justice. We're not the arbitrators of justice in God's world. It's not for us to decide. As much as it seems unfair, it's not for us to decide what's just or unjust. God does what he does. Put yourself in Moses' shoes in Exodus Chapter 4, verse 21. God comes to Moses and says, I've told you what to say and what to do, and we've gone through all of that. God and Moses had a lot of back and forth. God says, I've told you what to do and what to say, but be aware, even though I'm telling you to go before Pharaoh and ask him to let my people go, that Pharaoh isn't going to, because I am going to harden his heart. So we see Moses go and ask Pharaoh, and gets told no, just as God had said. And do you think Moses walked away thinking, well, I guess Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 
Or did he think God did exactly what he said he would? Because God had already told me before I came to Pharaoh the first time that I am going to harden his heart. As strange as it might be to think, I think Moses would have found it comforting that God was hardening Pharaoh's heart. Because it means that God is following through on what he had already told him was going to happen. He's following through on his promises. We're so used to knowing things in our world today. I literally said to my son Owen the other day, I have unlimited knowledge in my family. He asked me a question. I don't remember what it was. We can ask ourselves, who won the World Series in 1981? The Dodgers. How tall are the pyramids of Giza? 454 feet, I found out. I found that out in about 10 seconds, both of those answers. When I was growing up, to find those answers, I had two options. Convince my mom to drive us to the library, which she really wasn't keen on, or go across the street to my neighbor who had an Encyclopedia Britannica from like the 70s, which was amazing. She had this like huge book set. The problem was that her house smelled and she was weird and she'd be stuck there for at least an hour talking to Janet with her painted on eyebrows, listening to her talk about who knows what. That wasn't a great option for junior high me to find out what the answer was to who won the World Series. It's not how it is today. And I am not that much older than you all. But growing up, we were okay with not knowing the answers to things. Because if I didn't know who won the World Series in 1981, (laughs) oh, I guess I'm not going to know. Not until Mom takes me to the library. But that's not the case today. We have answers instantly at our fingertips, and it seems to translate into the deeper unknown truths of God. That we feel that we should be able to read this book and know everything there is to know about it. And we can know a lot. You can find commentaries, you can find books online, in your library, wherever you want to go. Find out a lot of stuff. But there are things that we just sometimes don't know. I think Scripture is very clear that God is hard in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't really do a whole lot in all of this. And that makes the free will side of my brain scream. It makes it twitch. And I don't have great answers for that part of my brain. Because scripture is very clear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I have to be okay with knowing that there's Nothing I can do about that. I don't know God's motives. I don't know why he does everything other than what he said. He did this to make his name known throughout the earth. Ultimately, though, does it matter if we know this answer? I don't think so, because that's not what this story is about. Yes, it's there. Yes, it's something that we can talk about. We can have theological discussions till the cows come home about free will and predestination and whatever else we want to talk about. It's there for the discussion, but it's not what the story is about. Ultimately, this story is about salvation. This story is about God saving his people. See, the Bible's full of failures. People who you would look at and say, well, they're a lost cause. What about David, Paul, or Moses? They either killed someone or were there when others were killed and did nothing. What about Jonah? He did the exact opposite of what God wanted and had to spend some time in the belly of a fish. What about Manasseh? A name probably a lot of you aren't familiar with. 
one of the kings of Israel, killed so many people that they said the valley was full of blood. Israelite tradition has it that Manasseh killed the prophet Isaiah, hunted him down and found him inside of a tree hiding, cut the tree in half with him inside. And yet God redeemed him. What about us? There is no heart too hard that God cannot soften and bring to himself. There's nothing that we can do or not do to put us beyond the love of God. Whether we're hearing this word for the first time or we've been following God for years and years, know this. God is there. He loves us. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew chapter 11. I find it very rarely that someone in our culture today is not weary and burdened. God says, come to me, all you who are weary. Not just the lost, but all of us who are weary. COVID right now, schools closing, it's just crazy. Politics, everything going on in our world. God says, come, come to me. There is no heart too hard. I honestly don't know what happened to Pharaoh because he's not the main event of this story. Yes, he is for these few chapters, but the story doesn't follow him. He could have been saved by the end of his life. I have no idea. I do know that God is reaching out to us, to you and to me, to follow him. Next week, Doug's going to bring us to the end. And I think if we know the plagues, how they end, they end with the death of millions of people. Only for salvation. Would you pray with me?